Lauren Nissen is a landscape architect and senior associate at Aspect Studios in Sydney, Australia. Growing up with a keen interest in science and having a natural creative flair has taken Lauren on a journey that most solar punks and urban permaculturalists would only dream of. She's helped design and worked on some of the most progressive and forward-thinking projects found anywhere in the world. Not only is she building the future we solar punks are hoping for, but she is also incredibly insightful when it comes to understanding how places of the future will function as mechanisms of societal support. If you're a Sydney sider, you'll be familiar with some of these projects, including the Darling Quarter Precinct, home to the dopest playground around, the now world-famous number one Central Park, a commercial slash residential village that looks like it belongs in Singapore, and if you're a current or former UTS student, you've likely sat and chat or studied on the newly developed Alumni Green. You can see all of the Aspect Studio projects on the gram at Aspect Studios, or one word, or on the website at www.aspect-studios.com forward slash au. Hello, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining me here today. No worries. It's a pleasure. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad to uh, have finally met up with you. I was lucky enough to get your contact through one of our usual guests here on the Solar Punk Permaculture Podcast, and he's uh, put me in touch with you. And uh, as I as I've already said, I'm really excited to speak about some of the projects that you've been involved in. Yeah, great. So, um, Lauren, before we get started, is there um is there a bit of a, a story for you? Like, how did you get into this this world of environmental design? How, how would you, like, if someone comes up to you in the street, how do you describe yourself? Uh, well, I'm a landscape architect by training and by trade these days, but I guess the way I got in um, is a really good question. I was always a kind of kid who loved science until I got to high school and then found it uh, perhaps a little bit much, um, but I was also an incredibly creative kid. Uh, when I was about nine years old, mum gave me a box cutter and cutting mat for my birthday <laughs> because she oh, wow. knew that that okay. would give me hours of joy um, compared to any toy that she could give me because I was just the kind of person who had a dollhouse and was always making my own furniture for the dollhouse and, and things for all of my little um dolls and creatures to live in. So I think that it was a, a really good combination as I, I uh, moved through high school and fell back in love with science and biology, but also continued to develop my love for all things creative. Landscape architecture started to appear as a uh, the kind of career that would combine both of these um, interests and love into something that I could do every day. So I guess that's how I got there. <laughs> Yeah. Have, yeah. I'm, have you ever reflected on that before? It sounds like that you were just having that thought for the first time. Um, I mean, not not as formally as that, I don't think. I think it's, uh, yeah, ne- never really in that kind of way. It's probably a bit of a new realisation, yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So, yeah, so what I'm hearing you saying is you kind of remarried your love for being creative like, and that's sort of the architecture, but also a love for nature and that that's the landscape am i hearing that right that's exactly right yeah yeah, yeah. wonderful mm-hmm. and and so so you you also said you didn't really enjoy science at school what happened at school that was so what was the barrier for science at school what happened um, oh, another great question i think um look i was incredibly curious had magnifying glasses and things all the way through primary school and then when i got to high school and it became a kind of much more formal part of education suddenly right. got really boring <laughs> so yeah um I think particularly the early years of high school seven eight and nine um just uh, it might have been a combination of not quite gelling with my teachers and not quite gelling with the subject material but it just I lost track and it wasn't until year 10 I had a really great science teacher um that maybe reintroduced my love of it um and then I ended up going on to do biology and chemistry in year 11 11 and 12 so he evidently did good work in turning my opinion of it around but 
um, I did I did lose it for a while there and became much more interested interested in fostering my creative side in those mm. years. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Like when I hear you say, um, you know, well, it sounds like you did have a great teacher who sort of rekindled that love. But when I think of biology and chemistry, I think of two areas of science that really allow a, a different level of inquiry and maybe that helped your creativity flourish again. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think, um, uh, I, yeah, the it's, it's biology a bit of a... in particular, I think just the curious curiousness was sparked again in my brain about the natural world and everything within mm. it, yeah. It's kind of innate to some of those fields, isn't it? Like you, mm. you, you have to, in order to engage with that, those sort of realms, which are very, very involved and complex, there's a certain level of inquiry that sort of comes with it, right? Like it's very hard, I, uh, you know, just speaking from my experience, to learn biology just through a textbook. You, you, you want to be out in it to, to really grasp it, don't you? Yeah, totally. And, and I mean, I think I should pay due credit to my mum here. My mum's always been a keen gardener. And I think if she hadn't been as keen a gardener as she was, then um, biology might have not been half as interesting to me. Just being out and seeing the things that I was learning in practice in the garden, um, seeing the seasons change and the physiology of plants, all of these things became much more immediate and present um, with that connection at home as well, I think. Yeah. So there's there's a real modelling through family Mm. And just that sort of you you had experimentation and curiosity modeled to you in a sense through your own family environment. And would you say that was would you say that's a important part of the way you think about landscape architecture as well? Um, in terms of how important my my family was in landscape architecture? Well, I guess I guess more broadly, like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you feel that the family and the family unit and community is important to the creation of landscapes and things Uh, like that. Is there an element there that you feel is necessary for a wholesome landscape architecture project? You know, do you have to consider these things for it to be? What are you? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a really good point, actually, and particularly in the, the world that we find ourselves in and the cities that we find ourselves in. I think the family unit or units and all the different ways that they do come together um, are incredibly important to what we do. So one of the big parts of what I now do, uh, particularly in the early stages of the project, is look at these um, models and studies that we like to call day in the life studies and that's really okay yeah so that's really breaking down um the trying to understand who it is who's using a place right um how they're using it and why over the course of a day or a year or a season um and i think understanding uh family life and and the way people need to access this public space in our increasingly dense and urban cities Mm. um using this day in in the life study is a really good way of getting us into thinking about that space in a much richer way rather than just making a place that's nice a place that's really going to suit the needs of everybody who's using it yeah there's like a what i'm hearing you say is that the interactivity between people and place is actually the most important like nexus to to consider you know if we reduce them to just being oh there's a park and there's some people you don't really get that richness that that you want from a space right yeah absolutely i think uh, one thing that we like to talk about at work a lot is that we design places that people want to be and i think at the center of everything that's what it's about so there's so many layers to what we do but at the end of the day for not making a place that people want to be and spend time in then we haven't really done our job so thinking about the people who are in it is is really the first thing and the most important thing we do in our work yeah so i mean this is absolutely fascinating lauren can you tell me more about that connection in particular like what is it about i mean we we both recognize that the connection between the people and the place is important but if we were to dive a little bit deeper what what things are important in the environment to have there for the people to interact with like what sort of things do you really consider when you're designing the environment for people the kinds of elements that we're designing into or the kinds of elements that maybe exist in the environment. Ooh. 
Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's question. a million-dollar okay. question. Uh, no, no, I, I'm, I'm enjoy- I love this interplay. Uh, I am saying the kinds of elements that you design into the place that draw the people in. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I mean, it comes down to the kind of space we're developing. But if we're looking at, say, um, play areas, um, it, it again d- depends on who we're catering to. There's there's a scale of from local community all the way up to regional right. um, kinds of play areas. But but I guess what we're looking for are moments um, for discovery and curiosity to really take. Um, centre stage so we like to be programmatic to an extent in what we design so I mean when you walk into a kids playground it's pretty clear that a slide is is there for you to climb up and slide down and climbing that is there for you to climb up but I think what's almost as important if not more important than those kinds of elements are all these things that are in between um, the way you you get between spaces, the more informal spaces that maybe aren't telling you exactly how to use them. I think right. these things are really important where you can maybe bend down and smell a really beautiful flower that's in bloom or you can crunch some crunchy leaves between your fingers and, mm. and smell the oils that come out of that or rub your hands across a kind of fairy lambsy kind of plant or a spiky um, rosemary kind of plant and and just these kinds of layers of textures and more um, incidental moments I think these these become incredibly important in the richness of a place and things that we really love to start bringing into the landscape wherever we can yeah I mean what I hear there is a deep consideration for the sensorial nature of humans and yeah and, and, and having those those textures and those elements that play on the senses that we obviously have inbuilt into us as humans being there for any level or um, entrance of exploration that the the person interacting with them chooses mm. it's like yeah. it's like a it's like a student centered experience as opposed to a you know you know the student or, or the person who is playing is at the center of it and it's for them to decide where they go yeah for sure i think the one of the most important things in play areas or family-based landscapes is um, this opportunity for you to direct what you want out of a space um, to have the opportunity to build those stories which are things that become really crucial to I think memories yes um, without you know without that opportunity to build your own story then yes it just becomes another playground where with a great slide an excellent slide perhaps but um, it, it doesn't have that full range of kind of spatial layering that really starts to lay down memories. Yeah, and, and yeah. I, I guess, you know, if everyone had their environment, uh, like the environment in a sense was dictated to them, then all the stories would be standardised. And I mm. think there's an innate feeling for our stories to be personal, right? Like if you, you know, in creating these spaces that are just open to choices and uh, avenues of approach then everyone has a chance to create their own tale mm. and that's important to us as humans as you know in meaning that we have to we want to have the chance to create our own stories yeah I think that's a really important point actually I there is there's so much um that's amazing in a shared experience I mean thinking about playgrounds that I used to visit as a kid that were maybe famous and or or well visited by peers of the same age we all remember particular things about that playground but I think what becomes more important to you is is the way you use that space and how that was special to you and your family and your brothers and sisters or friends yeah and the particular adventures that you were having there that felt unique to you yeah there's like a it's I mean I guess this is a, an interesting way to look at it. So, that, but there's a certain romance there between you and the environment. You know, it's like that romance is what essentially builds that neural architecture that really keeps that memory in your brain as well. Mm. You know? And if it was to be just the same old experience at every single uh, playground, then you would you wouldn't have in memories embedded as strongly as they could be if it was more if there was more choice involved. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a primary school teacher by trade and I'm fascinated by play. I, I spent about, what was it? I think I spent 13 years working in a, in a play environment and the, the actual 
structure of the curriculum was very loose but play-based. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, um, you know, we've kind of already started to head down this tunnel, but what, are you, what do you think of when you think of play? Like, what is your concept of play? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think, I mean, at the heart of it, I think play is about having the freedom to um, explore curiously the environment around you and to test boundaries and to test your own abilities um, in a way that you can't really do in anything that that, that isn't play. I think it, it's that, that freedom um to work without the parameters of rules i think Mm. at at the heart of it that's that's what play is to me yeah yeah there's an element of risk in there isn't there which is something Mm. i mean obviously i've become aware of your um projects through the darling quarter um playground which which i've seen referred to as a family entertainment precinct and when i visited it because i have i've been there i was there before um, you know, the construction of what it is now when Sega World and things were like that were there. And, you know, they used to have water features and stuff. But one thing that's really evident to me when I walk into space now, and as someone who thinks about play quite a bit, um, maybe to the point of obsession, um, <laughs> is that there seems to be more opportunity for risky play now. Mm. That, that, you know, that, and, and that for me as a someone who frequents that area is exciting because I also feel that the um, that play is actually fundamental to our species. You know, I, I feel like it's our, in a sense, it's kind of like our scientific method that's built in. Mm. We, we could go into that if we want, but but I yeah. love walking into that space and going, oh, there's more risk here, which is great. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that that it is our scientific method. I, I love that way of putting it, actually. And, and you are absolutely right. There is more risk involved in play now than there has been for a long time. I think um, our our generation growing up in the 80s and 90s would probably remember some fairly dubious play structures. I know at my primary school, we had some metal monkey bars over a concrete slab <laughs> and it wasn't unusual for people to fall through the cracks and break an arm or, or a leg. Yep. Um, and so you could do some pretty serious damage in those kinds of play environments. And I think with all of this happening, there was um, a big push to make playgrounds these incredibly safe, yeah. cushioned, low-risk environments. And that really persisted all the way into the early 2000s. And actually, the Darling Quarter Playground um, was one of the first examples, I think, I think in Australia, but certainly in Sydney, where... Um, we adopted a new play standard. So it it had kind of come full circle. I think people realised after 20 or more years, almost an entire generation, that reducing risk in play was actually more detrimental than it was beneficial. Um, So we we have actually actively pursued more risk in our playgrounds as a result. So obviously we're not doing things where anybody could die. That's certainly out of the question. We are trying to keep people as safe as possible. Yes. Um, there is an understanding that that being having mishaps, being injured in some ways is is a is a part of growing up, and it, it is a part of learning your boundaries and learning the limits of what your body can do and what we as humans can do. And so, it is okay if that does happen, and it is okay to feel a little bit nervous when you're going down a slide and it right. is okay to feel a little bit scared when you're climbing up something high because you will probably be safe or you will be safe i yes. should say probably yes. we will yeah. be safe <laughs> um but if you get bruised or you you maybe um learn that you're not going to do something that way again that's that's actually okay that's part of you learning what's acceptable to you right um so risk is now actually inherent in in what we design that's so fantastic. Play. That's so mm. fantastic. I mean, again, as an educator, I, I think of um, there's, a, there's you know, when you go through uni as a teacher, you learn about the various um, the various learning models. And one of the, the people we draw upon is this this man by the name of Lev Vygotsky. And he's famous for this for this uh, this way of thinking about learning, which is kind of this nexus between not too easy, but not too hard. Mm-hmm. And they call it the zone of proximal development. And I, I like you, grew up in this era where, you know, I remember in the early days swinging over the top of concrete slabs and 
also hearing snapped bones as some yeah. friends around us, you know, and, and there's there's an argument there to say that we hadn't got it right then, you know, that it was too unsafe. But mm-hmm. then uh, as you as you said, we sort of moved through this era where it's like the children are falling on balloons and there was just no risk at all, you know, mm-hmm. so we're in the middle there and we realised, uh, sorry, we're at the other end of the spectrum where it was perhaps too safe and there was no chance for students to learn about risk management. And um, yeah, so th- that zone of proximal development sits in the middle where there is space for risk because without the risk, then you don't understand what the boundaries of physical reality is. And where, where do a lot of children, you know, test out these boundaries? Well, they do it in playgrounds through play. So mm. uh, again, I, I just love that, that you guys have almost put that at the center of the design concept. And I think that's really fantastic for people around the world to just be engaged with. You know, we need to realize that we don't have to sort of put little cushions around our children and things like that. Because in fact, as you said, and as the research says, it's detrimental in some levels. Mm. And I think we're much more resilient than we've given ourselves credit for over the last generation or so. (laughs) Yes, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, Taking a little sidestep, can we talk a little bit about the sustainable development of the site? So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe moving more into a realm that's talking about the materials and the actual physical mediums that were used in the playground. What sort of considerations came in there? Um, well, I think uh, robustness and longevity is something that we really turn to a lot in the public domain and in landscape. Um, I mean, this is what now one of the most visited sites in um, Sydney. It is an incredibly popular place uh, from dawn till dusk and beyond. Yeah. Um, so Pumping there's all there's the time. Oh, all the time. I think mm. you can go down there at ten or eleven o'clock at night, and you'll have the twenty-two year olds who've had a little bit too much to drink who've decided to use the playground in much the same way that a five or six year old would in the broad light of day. But there's so many um, people coming through this space on a daily basis that what we need to make sure of first and foremost is that the landscape is going to stand up to. Um, just all all of that foot traffic and all of these people moving across it so um there is a lot of concrete in in that particular space and it is something um that has is it's a bit of a double-edged sword i know that concrete has a lot of inherent um uh, embodied energy within it um but it is something that lasts for an incredibly long time it's it's strong it's durable that concrete that the romans were using has been around for thousands of years yeah good reason um i mean i don't expect that darling quarter playground to be around for thousands of years that would be nice um but but it is something that's going to give it the best chance of being around for generations i mean yeah it would be amazing if um people who grew up going to that playground got the opportunity to take their own children to the same playground in 20 or 30 years time so i think that is the, the biggest um, part of what we do when we select materials in the public domain um, with a sustainable, an eye to sustainability. Um, when we use timber, the timber in that project is, um, we always go for FSC certified timber, um, Australian hardwoods where we can, where we can uh, trace the kind of line of I, I forget the terminology it's, yeah, yeah. You, you're kind of tracing where it came from yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. you're looking at the resource trail and making sure you know where that trail is and it's not necessarily far away if you can help it it's, yeah mm. yeah yeah and making sure that it's sustainably sourced so um as much as possible looking for plantation timbers or yeah. timbers that aren't from old growth that's that's something that we're certainly keen to stay away from and i think um finally i mean above uh, beyond timber and the kind of heaviness of the ground plane um things like steel become really important also for their robustness but also they're inherently recyclable they can be recycled again and again so yeah. it is good that when these things need to be replaced they can have a second third fourth life yeah um, yeah there's something else yeah yeah, and, and I guess that's something that, you know, a lot of people may be familiar with some of the um, playground soft fall mm-hmm. that you see. And, you know, I mean, I work in primary schools and all of the playgrounds have soft fall, but that stuff's not sustainable. I mean, that's like a some sort of polymer, some synthetic polymer, and you can only imagine it has one life and that's it. So, yeah, I mean, w- what's also really cool is that obviously you guys have not, in that particular project, 
softball is not even a thing. It's mostly like bark and things yes. like that. Yeah. which is really cool. Can you speak to that? What was the decision behind the bark and things like that? Um, I think that we, like you, are, are concerned about using too much softball. It is something that is a necessary evil in some situations and certainly with um, particular jurisdictions where we're working, maybe where there's incredibly public sites um, where there are low maintenance budgets, it does get used more than we would like. But right. um but it, it's also, it's basically plastic. So yeah. when it heats up in the heat of the Australian summer, it's, um, you know, giving off VOCs and, um, and and melting under people's feet. It has it can get incredibly hot, yeah. um, more so than any other. It, it's not good at dissipating energy like other things are. So no. I think mulch is a great renewable alternative to that. It, it is a soft, safe thing to fall on. It's um, cheap to replace. It can be quite sustainable because it is byproduct of um, of tree yeah. pruning and arboricultural yeah. industries. Um, it's usually so on its, it's second much life better. form by the time it gets to you as well, right? So yeah. there's like a there's a response to something that is that is reusable and and mm-hmm. j- just the simple identify identification that you know you guys could use something that's that's useful again is is very very cool to see mm. yeah sorry i cut you off there with what you were saying um no that's okay and I, I i think the last thing i wanted to say is that as it breaks down it doesn't cause any harm it's just right. becoming part of the soil again so i think that is another consideration yeah um and, and can be taken up by the plants as they establish um yeah, yeah. hits a whole nother uh, another life cycle again yeah yeah, yeah. fantastic um Another thing that you guys, or, or, or the, the sorry, what what is the name of the? Is it Aspect Studios that you guys are called? That's right, Aspect yeah. Studios. Yeah. Sorry, I don't want to keep referring to you as you guys. Um, <laughs> um, is another thing that is fantastic to see, and and still on this um, this trail of sustainable education, perhaps, is the water. The amount of water that's used in that project is interesting from a from a learner's perspective because you know there is lots of opportunities to experiment and play with water there what was the thinking behind that um well there's there's a couple of layers to that one is sydney is an incredibly hot place and uh water play is a really brilliant thing to offer the children of sydney and tourists internationally to come and enjoy most of the year actually let's face it there's not many weeks of the year where splashing around in water is completely unpalatable right um, but other otherwise interestingly um darling harbour itself was part of the harbour until not long ago so yeah not not the the watery bit but what is now covered in buildings and playgrounds and plazas and food courts was part of the harbour until about the late 1800s and so i think um revealing the history of the site is something that's really integral to what we do um, as particularly as a practice but as landscape architects and we wanted to use an opportunity to talk about um, both the history of this site as being part of the harbour but also um, as it was reclaimed from the harbour it became part of a central part of industry so the steam mills that occupied um, Darling Harbour were a really big part of energy production and manufacturing in the early days of Sydney so this water playground is actually um, is is talk is is talking about that history um, as as part of the harbour and part of the industry of Sydney, but it's also an incredible opportunity for kids and families and and lots of adults <laughs> to learn yeah. um, about engineering. So um, yes, the sluice gates and um, channels and things that yes. move in di- different directions they require people to come together and work together to understand how water works and how these elements work to make the water move in the ways that they want. Yes. So these channels can be blocked off. They can be, um, uh, we can, what's the word? I can't think of the word, but they redirected. Like redirected. That's the word. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so that um, it, it becomes like a little playground for budding engineers, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> to figure out how to move water and, and use it um, in, in a material way, in a way that you probably don't get just by splashing around in jets, which there are also jets. There are um, jets. in I that playground. Jets. Don't forget the yeah. jets. Yeah, they're good. No, don't forget the jets. It's it's there's nothing like running through 
um, some water spraying on you in the middle of a hot summer's day, but um, yeah. the opportunity to actually manipulate the water, that's that's something that you don't get to do in many places. Yeah, I, I mean, it's that suburban sprinkler scene that we all know from those movies from the 80s or whatever, the kids in the backyard yeah. with the sprinkler is now being brought yep. into, the, into, the, um, into the realm of the public and in this sustainable manner. I, I, th- I think what's really cool about what you were just saying is that you've got to work together with some of those combi- those water mm. sluice combinations and that you know again as a as a parent as a learner the collaboration that is you know just it needs it's a part of that area you know whether you don't even have to design well i guess you do I and mean, i'm sure you did think about it but like just the physical distance between different elements of those water cycles mm. promotes the collaboration and that communication that is needed to get some random, you know, random Billy's trying to get um, Janine's. Janine, hello. I'm sorry, we haven't met, but I'm just wondering, can you, can you pull that sluice for me? I need the water to come down here. And she's like, "Yeah, right, sweet." That's yeah, awesome. it's awesome. <laughs> no, yeah. that's exactly yeah, that's exactly the idea. So my my director Kate was was really responsible for developing these ideas, and there is, believe me, a lot of engineering in where these um, sluice gates and channels and things were placed to allow exactly that. These things were meant to be positioned far enough away that you probably wouldn't have a brother and sister yeah. um, doing this. You'd have to engage with somebody that awesome. maybe you hadn't met before and make new connections. So that is a really important part of that design. I mean, so that, well I mean up. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's those connections that what is what make this place beautiful, you know? Mm. I mean, obviously, this is one way of looking at it, but when I get down there and obviously the connection I have with it is different to your connection or someone else's, but I get down there and I just see, wow, everyone is not, you know, it's like there's no excuse for you to be stuck on your phone, you know? You get there yeah. and it's like, oh, well, we have to connect. This is how you do it. And yeah. it's like in built into the entire process at this like meta level that is just, it's just beautiful, you know? Yeah. I don't know how else to describe it. It's just beautiful. Yeah, it is yeah. It is beautiful to see. And, and it's kind of good that you have to use two hands a lot of the time. So you can't even be recording what you're doing as you're doing <laughs> exactly. it. You've just got to be fully within the moment enjoying yeah. the experience of being alive. Yes. Yeah. yeah, of being alive. I think that's one. I mean, we talked earlier about the innate sense of play and that's what... That's a lot of the time. I think I think adults of, of our age even forget that play is almost it's essential, you know. And you don't, I guess you don't really realize it until you you interact with it um, that you that you miss it so much. And and I think it's wonderful yeah. that you know that we have to play in these environments. And and in a, in a sense, it is forced. You know, it's yeah. not forced in a sense like the rules here is you must play and have fun. It's like no, we <laughs> we just designed this cleverly enough so you have to play. And I think yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It's it's a good opportunity for um, old Scrooges to get involved in something <laughs> that they thought they'd long since enjoyed. Yeah, have their, enjoying have, rather. Yeah, have their first laugh in a decade. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, but it, look, we digress. I, I um, so at the moment when I've been asking these questions, I'm kind of painting this visual map in my brain of sort of this like central area of where the water is and the bark and all the sort of like hop and skip and the bridges and stuff. But if we were to, you know, further paint this map and spread out, there is, there's actually, I mean, it's a very complex little area because on the side of that play area, there's all of like the parallel streams of water that are right next to a path that are right next to the beds of the international convention center. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as you, travel further down that path there's in this precinct beyond the um, Japanese gardens which is a whole other beautiful place but um, because I've got you on the line we're going to talk about the bird's nest and things Uh, like that (laughs) so so we spoke about this a little bit earlier you said that um, the bird's nest and that particular uh, is it called the bird's nest I just call it that you can call it whatever you want I don't the official name of the building is the exchange but we I think there was a, a recognition early on in the team that it it resembled many things and um, Bird's Nest was one of them and we hoped that that's what people would think of it as. Oh, I, I've heard other people talk about it as um, ramen noodles. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> it's like one of those pre, pre-cooked stacks of noodles just before they drop into the ramen. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Which is particularly pertinent because that building was designed by a Japanese architecture firm. So we thought that um, the appearance of ramen noodles would be a, a nice little... 
connection to yeah. the design team. Yeah, yeah. And, it's in, and it's in that that general precinct of Chinatown and mm-hmm. that cultural centre that, you know, that we we as Sydneysiders adore um, because of the, the history that comes with those cultures and, you know, being a part of the Australian Pacific region and the partnerships we have with mm. many of those Asian countries is important to us. And I think it's a, yeah, a wonderful, a wonderful yeah. ode to that parts, those parts of our community. But um, so... So where do you come in there? Like how much time did you spend on that? Like <laughs> um, countless hours. I don't even <laughs> know. Um, it was officially about five years from uh, when I first started on that project to when we can say we cut the ribbon and it opened to the public once and for all. But I think that project was actually around for a lot longer than that. So um, it's probably 10 or more years since that project first really appeared as an idea. Right. Um, just this idea of creating that, that precinct at all mm. um, to when it, it became a reality. Um, but five solid years of design, documentation and construction admin um, was, was my role on that project <laughs> you say that <laughs> we with got a there sigh. in the end you well look there it was uh, occasionally a very exhausting process but oh, in the end I can say it was all worth it and I do have to pinch myself when I go down there and see just how much it has become a part of people's daily life and a part of their their backyard and their Sydney that I think it was probably all worth it in the end <laughs> oh 100 percent right all worth it I mean as I said to you earlier before we started the show like my wife and I go down there and we we love it we love it it's beautiful and one of the it's things some, some of the things that I put I mean me as sort of someone who's just obsessed with nature like the natural feel of those curves of the of the you know the the bird's nest and also just real simple things that I really just love is when you walk along the path, there's sort of like the path is broken to the sense mm. that there are slates missing, there are bricks missing, but that's actually garden space, you know, and yeah. there's, a, there's a real oh, lack of a better term, intrusion of nature that I'm just, mm. I adore. I love that the, the nature is even at the, you know, it's kind of like. It's at all different levels, you know. You look down, you see it. You look midway, you see it. You look up, and it's there, and it's it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. That was a that was a really big um, priority for us, bringing that green and that vegetation into that space. That, that it starts to take over the city in a way it, it doesn't really get an opportunity to in in other more traditional city squares or city landscapes so mm. we pushed really hard <laughs> oh, really really hard good to get you. these yeah. elements in where we could and we're really pleased that they happened the way we did i mean i, I will give a shout out to the architecture team um they were incredible um in so many ways uh, often with architecture firms um there's it's a bit verboten to put trees and plants in front of their beautiful buildings that will right. need to be photographed for <laughs> Don't um, architecture awards. Yeah. Exactly. They yeah. want their, their buildings to be seen in all their glory with no interruptions. And we yeah. suggested early on that there should be trees in front of this building, mm. um, this timber wrapped building. And our clients initially said, no, we can't do that. And the architect said, what do you mean? I think that's brilliant. It's going to look like a bird's nest. So yeah. they were on our side. And so it was really great to have that design team pushing together to get the best outcome and have a really collaborative team yeah how good look i i know that it's not necessarily a project that you've worked on but you know we're kind of just again we're we're visually we're painting this area for our listeners the 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 precinct that we're in here and we're, we're essentially for anyone who's listening we're talking about sort of like this ultimo region which is in sort of the the outskirts of the sydney cbd is is quite pioneering in this realm of nature and like the built environment and the biological environment coming together and of course most people will know particularly if you uh, a UTS student a University of Tech student across the road they've got Broadway one which is this building that is just it is it is part ju- part forest part building and you know I've heard that there's um, more projects on the on the horizon with country uh, companies like Atlassian wanting to create these skyscrapers which are Mm. essentially part nature part thing and you know incorporating all of the sustainable loops where possible but i'm just wondering like do you see this as a as a bigger trend particularly in sydney like is this where we're headed now i hope so yeah (laughs) i i think i think it really is i mean the kind of work that 
we do as a practice now, I think part of it is building on our experience in, in these areas. So my firm, not me, myself, my firm and another um, landscape architecture firm, firm worked on the Central Park buildings, which are famously right. these incredibly green buildings opposite the UTS. Um, That's what I'm talking about. Concrete right? Is that what it's called? Central Park buildings? Central Park. Central Park building. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Ah, yes. Yeah, sorry. I didn't realize that. Yes. We're talking about the same building. Yeah. So, I yes, couldn't remember we... the name, so I'm glad you brought the name. <laughs> <laughs> but go That's on. Okay. Um, so we did work on that at, well, probably 15 years ago now, maybe not quite, you... but that was a long, that, that was a long process. And I think that project really set the tone for what's now happening in Sydney. It, it yeah. led the way. Um, it, it showed people what is possible and even after being open for nearly 10 years now looks as incredible as the day it started oh, better beautiful. i think um there I, i've heard there's ecosystems of, of birds and things living up there in, in that tower because it's just so wow. incredible so um i think by virtue of our experience on that but also just the success of that project that that is becoming a really integral part to um, a lot of projects we do so we're doing projects with building and planting integrated more and more I think it's almost becoming the standard now if you're not doing something in that area then you're probably not going to attract the right kinds of tenants or the right kind of um, I mean that that's an apartment de development the central park development but there's a lot of commercial buildings now that know um, talking about biophilia I think oh I'm businesses... so glad you brought that word up yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah lots on, of businesses so no that's okay well we should we should talk talk about it more but um lots of businesses now recognize just how important that is to the well-being of of their staff and, and just of people their people we're all people um and so without these kind of elements of biophilia coming into development developments now you're not going to attract the same kinds of tenants and you can't attract the same kind of money so it it has become financial in some ways but that's a really big part of it now being so um central to everything that we do which is yeah. amazing for us yeah i, I think yeah i, I mean I, i'm hearing you say that you know that's what's attracting economies and things like that but i think mm -hmm. you know and just to inter intertwine this concept of biophilia in here like it's also attracting human psychological health mm. you know and and for those listening i mean well why, why don't you do, would you like to describe for our listener what the concept of biophilia is oh i don't well I, i'll try i think you might actually know a little bit better than me i don't think i could describe it succinctly but i think biophilia is is more or less this this idea that um humans have an innate need to be connected to nature right um that it is it is a part of what we need to survive um, yeah and and thrive um that just shutting us in concrete boxes in um, cubicles in 50-story skyscrapers with with nothing green around us is is a pretty good way to to beat us down and wear us down and it's not a good way to um, get the best out of people. Yeah. Um, so biophilia is I, I guess it's it's not a new idea but it is an area that's really gaining traction. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. might be able to no, no, describe no, it a little better than me. That was wonderful. Me. That was I mean that was perfect. That was I mean and I am not an expert by any means. I mean I've had my own. I've had my own experiences, very, very hardcore experiences by fear. Do you mind if I share a little story with you quickly? No, not at all. Well, I mean, my first experience with biophilia and this real understanding that I was like just connected on some other level. And this is in no means at all like some hippy dippy spiritual process. But um, a short backstory, I've been a, a, a practicing street artist for close to 15 years now, right? Mm -hmm. And for anyone in, in the area of practice that I was in, which was uh, predominantly letters and words, so graffiti, um, places like New York, right? So New York City, this giant mecca of concrete and just beautiful, really. Um, yeah. For a graffiti artist, New York City is mecca. And some years ago, about five, six years ago, I got my chance to travel to mecca as a graffiti artist, right? And wow. I was excited as all hell, you know, like I'd made connections with people there and I, I learned some of the history of the graffiti scene and I painted walls in the heartland of Brooklyn, which is just, you know, without going into too much detail, that, that's like, <laughs> that's like number one on my bucket list, right? Yeah. But I like after two days of just being surrounded by that sort of cityscape, which personally I love, like I love the grimy natural uh, decay 
of things moving back towards nature, if you will. I love that. But after about three days, I started getting real blue. And I just said to my wife, I, it just came out. I didn't even, I didn't even have to think. I, I said, so I think I need to see some grass. I need yeah. something green. And, you know, it just so happened that we only had one more day there. But it just kind of slapped me in the face, you know. Mm. And I was like, wow, I really need to see some trees right now, people. Like, yeah. <laughs> has anyone got a tree? I need a tree. And it was probably the first time in my life where I really felt like I think I need to hug a tree. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not that type of person. Anyway, we, we ended up getting our next flight to, um, to a much greener space. And it was like instant feedback. I was mm. like, oh, yeah. I feel a lot better now. So, yeah. you know, th this, whether you are into the spiritual nature of connecting with the earth or not, there's almost, at least in my experience, there was like a non-negotiable partnership in a sense that I found it to have with my health that I had no choice over, you know? So I don't know. I just, uh, like, like you said, I think a lot of people are starting to recognize this now yeah. and and seeing these cityscapes, I mean, this this podcast is entitled the Solar Punk Permaculture Podcast because uh, are you familiar with the Solar Punk concept? Oh, I don't know that I am actually. L long story short, Solar Punk is just a, a genre of fiction that is about creating pretty much the worlds that you're creating, like creating landscape, architectural environments that incorporate the environment. You know. So, yeah, right. so when okay. I think of a when I think of a solar punk world, I think of the Darling Quarter playground. I think of those Central Park buildings. I think of architecture that incorporates the environment as much mm. as possible. Because if you if you put on this solar punk mindset, that's the type of world you're trying to create. And that's why I wanted to talk to you today because you're actually involved in creating <laughs> solar punk landscapes. Yeah, we try, we try, but we're definitely, yeah. So there you go. I didn't even realize this was a, a thing that we're part of, but that's exactly what we do. Yeah. Amazing. Well, it's, it's weird. It's like a little, I mean, the, the, the genre of fiction, because that's basically where it comes from, is only about mm -hmm. 10 years old. But, right, it, okay. you know, it's starting to get some traction and obviously it's starting to physically manifest in the world, whether yeah. whether the connection was made or not. And, you know, that's why I wanted to talk to you today because... I think what you guys are doing, whether or not you've made that connection or not, is just so much more important than a lot of people give the time to consider. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's a really, you've touched on a bit of a nerve there. I think that it's one thing we learned really early at university is that we're the invisible profession. Um, that right. people actually still these days don't really have any idea. A lot of people don't really know what landscape architecture is or what we do and they think broadly it might be designing gardens which yeah that's a really important part of what we do right but it's so much bigger than that and the thing about landscape architecture is that you don't necessarily notice when it's there or when it's done well right but when it isn't you really notice and yes. i think that's just what we have to have become so true. comfortable with <laughs> yeah. what we do it's just is being in, invisibly making cities places that are more um enjoyable and joyful and comfortable and welcoming um and mm. no one's ever going to necessarily notice what it is that we've done, but that's okay. No, <laughs> um, because I, I they would will push know back if we're that. not there. <laughs> I would push back on that, and I'd say, you know okay, what? I don't good. want it to be invisible. I want you to flaunt these buildings. <laughs> I want there to be one on every block, like yes. And, and yeah. you know what? People will, will be responsive to that. I know you yeah. do, but yeah. for our <laughs> listeners out there, it's kind of like, yeah, actually, I want to see more of these. I don't want it to be invisible. I want to see this yeah. happen. You know. Let's yeah. let's write this story and make it make that our our space. Yeah, I think yeah. yeah, that's it. I think that's what these buildings do so beautifully. You can't miss them. No one ever misses a building. So when it's staring you in the face and it's dripping with green, you know it's there. Um, yeah. And so that's maybe brought visibility to what we do on the ground um, a yes. little bit better. So yes. Hopefully that connection is is being made more and more. Um, but in the meantime, we'll keep chipping away at it. <laughs> Good. Please do. Yeah. Please do. I'll, I I will promote every time you chip away at a new project. I'll be the first person to land it. Hey, Great. I've got a question for you, and and I'm yeah. going to ask you because I sense that you're interested in the same sort of landscapes that I am. 
Have you been to Gardens by the Bay in um, Singapore? No, but I'm dying to go. I've oh never been gosh. to Singapore. I want to go to Singapore and eat my way through. Um, but I would love to go to Gardens by the Bay. I yes, its reputation precedes it. So. It is another. Yeah. Thing. It is <laughs> yeah. another world. It is. I mean, I, I did, my wife and I chose to go there because I wanted to do a pilgrimage. I was like, I've got to see this. I've got to see what's <laughs> going on. And I tell you what, when you walk into those domes, there's two domes. I'm sure you're aware of, of them. But for listeners, mm. you know, there's not only these giant trees that have like bougainvilleas and wrap, wrapping around them and they're all their own sort of closed loop, uh, closed loop water cycles. But there's also these two giant greenhouses next door. And wow. they're these, it's just... It's science fiction in real life. And again, it's it's solar punk. It's just yeah. beautiful. And the ecosystems that they create just blow. Like I walked in, Lauren, and I, I suspect you made it. I walked in and I didn't get past the main foyer for about 15 <laughs> minutes because I just stood there and I looked up and I was just like, are you serious? Like, <laughs> you did this? Like I, I, could, I, couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. It was beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd love to go. I, I, I mean... Singapore is an incredible place. They have built-in policies, um, and don't quote me on this because I'm not sure of all the details, but I know that Singapore is um, striving to be a city in a garden. So that is what they are trying to do. And I think that most developments there, I think all developments there basically have a requirement to replace the land that they've built on with um, landscape. So, I mean, in a city state like Singapore, where they're basically building into the sea, I mean, they don't have anywhere to grow. How do you do that? How do you replace development with landscape? Well, the answer is making these buildings that are covered with, they have roof gardens, they have yep. um, planting all over the facade of the building. They've got internal courtyards, they've got green on every conceivable surface. And it's yep. just, that's that's written into the legislature. Legislature? you know what i mean um and what an incredible thing i mean i think other cities around the world are starting to cotton onto that and there are places in australia that are starting to realize the value of that now yeah um and i can only hope that that becomes more and more the norm around the world because like what an amazing precedent to set for the planet so what an amazing precedent to set for the planet look lauren (laughs) i think that's a beautiful place to to finish up on here because (laughs) If we can leave that type of idea, that type of picture in our listeners' head, then I think we've done ourselves a service today. Um, thank you so much for joining me here today. It was a pleasure. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. And and if I um, can I direct any of our listeners towards maybe uh, some portfolios or there, have you got any websites? That can any can people connect with you in any sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can find me um, occasionally uh, posting on Instagram at Lauren E. Nissen. Um, but I think what's probably more useful for your listeners is our um, company website, which is Aspect Studios. So we're at aspect-studios.com and on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Wonderful. The same name. All the yeah. socials, all of them. All the socials, yeah. All right, great. Well, I'll put all those links in, in the description of the podcast and and as I said before, if you've got any of these projects coming up, I will be the first to promote them because um, they're important, man. They're important. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Lauren, thank you very much. Um, Great. Thank you. I will, hopefully we can do this again. We can speak soon. All right. Thanks, Sam. All right. See you later. Okay. Bye. Bye.